The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 1, Chapters 1 through 3. It is January 6, 1482, the day when the populace of Paris celebrates the Epiphany and the Feast of Fools. Almost as soon as the novel opens, we the readers find ourselves swept into it, pushed along by the sea of people making their way to the festivities. Disgorged from one room to another, dashed against projections, and poured down the staircase into the great hall of the Palace of Justice. At the sight of the mystery play, we are given the opportunity to see behind the curtain, not just of the play, but of the whole culture. The play is to commence at the stroke of noon, and with the appearance of the Flemish ambassadors. And we, meanwhile, are allowed to mingle with the Parisian populace. As we wait, the throng crowding the great hall continues to grow in numbers and in impatience. First, we zero in on a group of merry demons, young students content to entertain themselves by exchanging scoffs and banter, laughing noisily, and harassing the spectators, while they wait for the play to begin. Among them is Jeanne de Moulin, also known as Joannes Frollo de Molendino, a little devil with a handsome but evil countenance, and often the instigator of the mischief. It is he who, after even the students grow tired of waiting, shouts for the devil to take the Flemish and for the mystery to begin. After which, a fellow student suggests hanging the palace bailiff and his guards by way of a comedic prelude. The crowd is momentarily placated as the man who will play the part of Jupiter takes the stage in all his gilded regalia. But when he announces that the play will begin as soon as the most eminent cardinal arrives, his voice is drowned in a storm of hoots. The day is saved with the entrance of our pale, fair-haired, bright-eyed poet and author of the morality play, Pierre Gringoire, who urges Jupiter to begin and says he will take the responsibility. Two young women, observing his colloquy with the star of the play, approach him with blushing cheeks and downcast eyes to draw this important personage into conversation. Will the play be interesting, they want to know? And by interesting, it becomes clear, they mean, will this morality play involve nudity, fighting, song, and refreshments? Alas, it won't. But when the play begins, we the readers get to experience a different sort of enjoyment. Hugo's expert parody of a hack writer with a grandiloquent style. But despite the play's crudely literal costumes, heavy-handed allusions, and pretentious, metaphor-laden maxims, the audience is initially wrapped in attention, and Gringoire is able, for a moment, to bask in their appreciation. But the moment doesn't last long. First, that rogue Joannes Frollo calls out the phony beggar Clopin Troyfou, and the audience is distracted. Then, the Flemish ambassadors arrive, and the audience's attention is irrecoverably lost. Our attention, too, is turned to Hugo's parodic parade of eminent figures. And frankly, much of the parody went over my head. A little into my research of the marriage arranged between Margaret of Flanders and the Dauphin, I made the serene decision to accept that I am too ignorant of French history to appreciate the humor and insights that undoubtedly lie within those final pages of the chapter. 
I'm okay with that. And if you're in my boat, I think you should be too. As I said before, the historic distractions will fall away, and the pace of the plot will pick up. So stay with me. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called The Timelessness of Hugo's Medieval Satire. The critic Sambeuve said of Notre Dame, quote, In the style, there is a magical facility and freedom in saying all that should be said. There is a striking keenness of observation. Especially, there is a profound knowledge of the populace and a deep insight into man in his vanity, his emptiness, and his glory, whether he be a mendicant, vagabond, savant, or sensualist, unquote. This keen observation of and deep insight into the populace of 15th century France is one that really transcends time. What I enjoyed most about these chapters was Hugo's astute and often hilarious commentary on a vast array of human vices. On the pretense of elevated values and virtues, and the superficial considerations that actually guide people's choices, quote, it must be confessed, to the glory of the proverbial good sense of Parisian idlers, that the majority of the crowd turned towards the bonfire, which was most seasonable, or towards the miracle play, which was to be performed in the great hall of the law courts, well-roofed and in between four walls, unquote. On conventional man's sheep-like tendency to follow the crowd and to content themselves with the shallow entertainment of snooping, Quote, At doors, windows, in garrets, and on roofs swarmed thousands of good plain citizens, quiet, honest people, gazing at the palace, watching the throng, and asking nothing more. For many people in Paris are quite content to look on at others, and there are plenty who regard a wall behind which something is happening as a very curious thing. Unquote. Many people in medieval Paris, as well, I might add, as people all the world over till the end of time. On the irritableness of an impatient crowd, and the human tendency to point a finger indiscriminately when we seek to displace our frustrations, I believe psychologists call this kicking the cat, quote, On every hand we heard curses and complaints against the Flemish, the mayor of Paris, Cardinal Bourbon, the palace bailiff, Madame Margaret of Austria, the ushers, the cold, the heat, the bad weather, the lord of misrule, the columns, the statues, this closed door, that open window, unquote. On every generation's conclusion that the next generation, with all its ruinous influences, will be the end of the world. Quote, I tell you, sir, this is the end of the world. The students never were so riotous before. It's the cursed inventions of the age that are ruining us all. In our day, this sentence could end with cell phones, Instagram, video games, and TV. But in the Middle Ages, it was artillery, bombards, serpentines, and particularly printing, that other German pest, unquote. I could have named countless more, and I'm interested in hearing your favorite insights into human nature. By the way... Just as a fascinating but gossipy aside, the biographer who quoted the glowing words by Sainte-Beuve with which I began above said that he wrote this when he could be unbiased. That made me curious. 
what might this bias have been? And then I learned that after he wrote a very laudatory review of Hugo, Sainte-Beuve and Hugo became good friends. And after they became good friends, Sainte-Beuve had an affair with Hugo's wife. And after the affair, they were estranged. So, yes, I see many reasons why he might have, at one time or another, been biased. The next of my posts to the Facebook group was a funny story. It's always fascinating to know how a great book is received in its time. Notre Dame de Paris was a sensation. An eighth edition was printed within the year it was first published, and according to biographer Alfred Barbu, the number of subsequent editions can scarcely be estimated. And that is from a biography written in 1882. The novel had its detractors, but in general it was met with popular and critical acclaim. Sainte-Beuve, Hugo's erstwhile friend, said, quote, There is an unexampled comprehension of form, an unrivaled expression of grace, material beauty, and greatness, and altogether a worthy production of an abiding and gigantic monument. Alike in the pretty prattlings of the nymph-like child, in the cravings of the she-wolf mother, and in the surging passion, almost reaching delirium, that rages in a man's brain, there is the molding and wielding of everything just at the author's will." Unquote. That brings me to the story. The sensation caused by the novel was not long in attracting crowds to Notre Dame Cathedral. According to Barbu, quote, One day, while Victor Hugo was conducting a party of ladies over to his cathedral, the Cicerone came as usual to render his services. On reaching the belfry entrance above the gallery, he opened the door of a cell and proceeded to tell his story. Here is the cell where the illustrious Monsieur Hugo wrote his popular work. He never left the spot till he had finished writing. There you see his table, his chair, his bed. He took hardly any food, and that of the plainest kind. The poet gravely thanked the intelligent verger for these historical details, and with a gracious smile bowed and slipped a gratuity into his expectant hand. Hugo handled the duplicity of this entirely fabricated story with grace. But I have to think that this foible of human nature, too, made it into his novel somewhere. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called, I Have an Evil Twin, and its name is Schmoop. In my online scholarly research, I find myself continually confronted with an ever-present literary arch-nemesis, Schmoop. Arch-nemesis or evil twin, I'm not quite sure which. Because though in some abstracted way we share a common goal, our manner of achieving it is universes apart. What is Schmoop? Well, here's the self-description from their website, and the description itself should already begin to betray the nature of our irreconcilable differences. Quote, Schmoop is a digital publishing company with a point of view. We seek to empower and broaden the range and depth of choices students have in life. Our teaching method revolves around the basic notion that learning is often too hard. So we carry gallons of academic WD-40 that we squirt on the tracks whenever we can. 
We believe that education need not be an arduous, Herculean set of labors. Fun is not the enemy here. Unquote. Their motto is, we speak student. So, what does it mean to speak student? What is the WD-40 of learning? What, to them, constitutes fun? Here are two glimpses into the meaning, from their reader's guides to Notre Dame de Paris and In Memoriam. Sacré bleu. Grab a baguette, put on your beret, and forget everything you know about the Disney movie, because we're about to get more French than camembert. That's right. We're talking about one of the most famous French novels ever written, that book by Victor Hugo that isn't Les Miserables. Wait, you mean Les Miserables is a book? The story that made gargoyles and gypsies cool. We're talking, of course, about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Unquote. Quote, it's that age-old story, boy meets boy, boy loses boy, boy endlessly ruminates on the nature of loss and grief, with some meditations on evolution and religion thrown in just for kicks. It may sound a bit strange, but that's exactly what's going on in In Memoriam. Alfred Lord Tennyson, which we should think of as both the for reals Tennyson of the Victorian period, but also as the fictionalized speaker of the poem, wallows in his grief over losing his dear friend Arthur, who has died of a brain hemorrhage at the tragically young age of 22, unquote. Schmoop offers chapter by chapter and, for in memoriam, even line by line analysis. It offers historical context, helpful summaries, and some real insights. And I find the entire thing painfully, appallingly, unbearably awful. Ayn Rand once said that reading Victor Hugo makes her feel like she's entering a cathedral. Reading the analysis on Schmoop makes me feel like I'm entering a Chuck E. Cheese. It's just dirty and cheap and only clownishly entertaining. That comparison actually feels a little unfair to Chuck E. Cheese. Everything they publish is characterized by sarcasm and irreverence qualities absolutely at war with the subjects being addressed, if those subjects are Tennyson and Hugo. What is the point of reading great literature if your reading is done with a seedy smirk and a sneer? I, too, am trying to make reading great literature smooth and accessible and fun. But I think what is truly and fulfillingly fun is to be sincerely curious about and reverential toward and emotionally moved by literature. And it is in that sense that Schmoop is the arch-nemesis of Read With Me.